This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver, as you probably know, is booming, adding more than 80,000 people in just about the last five years. If you've been to the city lately, you feel it. You see it. The traffic, the construction cranes, that new restaurant that seemed to pop up overnight. Well, that growth is no accident. Years ago, Denver's leaders envisioned a city that would move past its cowtown roots. Denver Rising was the subject of a panel discussion that the New York Times put together, and today we air an excerpt of the event recorded just after the election. The speakers are Democratic Governor John Higginlooper, who used to be Denver's mayor, preservationist Dana Crawford, who saved many old buildings downtown, for an arts perspective, Britta Erickson, who leads the Denver Film Festival, and from the tech world, Brian Leach. He's founder and CEO of Denver-based Ibotta, which makes a cashback coupon app. The moderator is the New York Times Rocky Mountain correspondent Jack Healy. And let's start with preservationist Dana Crawford, who hopes Denver doesn't lose its cowtown reputation entirely. Well, you know, we've been terribly sensitive uh, with the Chamber of Commerce and the downtown Denver partnership, et cetera, not wanting to be called a cow town. And, of course, I'm involved with history, so I thought it was kind of cool. But just as an observer, when I moved here in the middle 50s, downtown, which is where I've really spent most of my time, we had just demolished the Denver Club building, which was really one of our best architectural achievements. And we had welcomed some of our Texas developers who put up the new Denver Club building. And I remember that the secretaries all wore, um, not all, but most of them wore saddle shoes to work, and their hair up in curlers. And, I mean, it was tacky. (laughs) So... um, and, and now, you know, this is an amazingly magnetic place. And we have all these really amazingly marvelous millennial kids, for me kids, flocking in with all these great innovative ideas. And we're kind of the, the cross-section of innovation and placemaking now, which really has us on the global map. And obviously our future is really involved with the global scene. So it's uh, today there was a meeting of the Urban Land Institute, and we went back over sort of the recent history of transportation changes here and the fact that we have one of the best metropolitan transportation systems now is almost unimaginable in the 50s and the 60s, but we had great mayors in the 70s, 80s, and 90s and great citizen participation and great collaboration, and so we're a different place. Here now is geologist-turned-beer-brewer-turned-mayor-turned-governor John Hickenlooper. All these millennials, we did not, you know, the millennials didn't start coming Mm. here because we legalized recreational marijuana, right? We legalized recreational marijuana because all the millennials had been coming here for more than a decade, Mm -hmm. and they thought that there wasn't that big a difference between pot and whiskey, and that we shouldn't be sending kids to jail for nonviolent crimes for selling something that wasn't, to at least to adults, not harmful. But that's the kind of last data point. That that's the kind of punctuation point on what was, in many ways, kind of a conscious effort. Dana was the true pioneer in in, in the historic lower downtown and uh, along Larimer Square, 
getting people to recognize that there was real value in a historic district of this scale. And, you know, you have strong mayor cities and weak mayor cities. Uh, Denver is a strong mayor city, so the mayor appoints everyone, makes the budget, but it's the strongest of all strong mayor cities. The mayor makes the budget, and of the 13 city council members, you need nine out of 13 to change one line item in his budget. It's a great system. (laughs) (laughs) And, And that's allowed... You know, when Federico Pena came in and what was that, 1983? I can't even remember. But, but he came in and he was throughout the kind of old, tired, white establishment. And he brought in all these smart, talented people that started envisioning uh, a city. And we opened, I'd gotten laid off, and we signed a lease in Lodo for a dollar a square foot per year, right across from Union Station, where the Wine Coop Brewing Company still is. And uh, there were a bunch of us that all kind of were, were kind of coming in there as Federico Pena's people were kind of reimagining what a city could be. And we all talked. I mean, things like putting the convention center downtown, not out in the Platte Valley, creating that critical mass. But we all came together and said we didn't want a bunch of nightclubs because in nightclubs you just compete and you lower, you do two for one all night long and you get people just being drunk in the streets. We all decided we wanted housing. We wanted a walkable community. When we passed Fast Tracks in 2004, two years after I became mayor, it was 119 miles, or 122 miles of new track, the most ambitious transit initiative in the history of the country. And, I mean, four-tenths of a cent sales tax. At that time, there were 34 mayors in the whole metro area, all 34 mayors, three-quarters of them Republicans, unanimously supported this tax increase to build transit. Well, you talk to millennials now why they like Denver. They love, they love the fact that we've got all these microbreweries. I take some credit for that. <laughs> But they are really attracted also to, the, to this trend. You don't have to have two cars in a two-person family. You can get around. There's a real density downtown. You can have a great quality of life walking. I mean, all this stuff, we didn't really envision the millennials. Actually, we were, most of us were kind of aging baby boomers. I mean, the, the end of the baby boomers. But it's funny, the values from the baby boomers and, and protesting the Vietnam War, you know, a lot of that kind of high nobility uh, ethical approach to life is what the millennials have. So we didn't plan that the millennials would exist, but the community that we envisioned with housing at the center and walkable, to, you could walk to work, uh, that we would have music was a huge part of, you know, when I came in as mayor, we were doing 32 concerts a year in the beautiful amphitheater of Red Rocks. Now they're doing 130 Right? And we, we tried to freeze taxes on places that did live music to push more live music. And now we have more live music venues in Denver than there are in Nashville or Austin, uh, which I, I got. Yeah, exactly. So, so that brand, what, what we were, the Cowtown, which I, I also claim, I agree with Dana, it's, if you're a preservationist, you want to embrace what you were. But we have, I mean, we have become a completely different place. A thousand miles of bike trails in metropolitan Denver. I mean, we have become a, a place that's forward-looking, and it helps attract. When you've got all these tech companies here, it, it makes their lives easier. Brian, talk a little bit about how you decided to, you know, center the company here, and you know why you're not in Silicon Valley or Boston or New York or somewhere like that. And again, Brian is Brian Leach, founder and CEO of the tech firm Ibotta. Stepping back, I think the internet has made a huge difference to towns like Denver and Boulder. Now you can be connected to the global economy from a much wider range of places, and you can build an app and put it in the app store 
And the cost of doing that is much, much lower than when my father started his company back in the early 80s, where they would have one or two versions of their product they could come out with a year. We come out with 50. <laughs> then the next question is, okay, what kind of environment do I want to live in, and where do I want to raise my family? And these younger people, look, the average age of our workforce is 28 years old. We've hired 160 people in the last two quarters. So I hire a lot of millennials. <laughs> and what they're looking for are access to the outdoors, some kind of ability to have flexible work-life balance arrangements. Uh, they're looking to do meaningful work. And it used to be that you had to choose between those to a greater extent. So you'd have to sacrifice living someplace where you have easy access to the outdoors, like you live in Manhattan, for example. I love Central Park. It's great. But it's not the same. And, uh, I mean, look, I grew up in a, in a poorly planned, sun-built city, Atlanta. That is not the kind of city that millennials wanted to live in. And so when it became possible to do really meaningful work that millions of people could use your product and so forth and go home to Boulder and go mountain biking or go up to the mountains or go snowshoeing or climbing 14ers, it began to be rising up and up and up on the list. <coughs> that doesn't just happen overnight. There is this problem called the, the second mover problem, meaning if you go to a job, you want to make sure it's not the only job that could be attractive to you in a given community. So if you're going to move to Boulder or Denver from the coast, you need to know that, first of all, your partner has a job. And, or could have a job, a good job. And second of all, that if it doesn't work out with you and your first gig, that second move is going to be acceptable. So the, the problem that Denver had when I first looked at moving out here in 2004 was that the critical mass of those opportunities wasn't there yet. So it seemed very risky to, to place a bet on the economy. And particularly in consumer technology, it wasn't on the map at all. Hmm. So you look at Silicon Valley, and you, whether it's Facebook or whether it's you know, LinkedIn or whether it's Yahoo or Google before that, or you look at even Seattle where you have Microsoft and where you have all these other companies, Amazon, these are household names. And so when you think about Seattle now, you think very different things than you thought about it in the 60s. And I think what Denver has had is a ton of B2B successes only now having a lot of really consumer-facing prominent companies. And that, that matters because, you know, when you open our mobile app, which, of course, you're all going to go download. It's free. Uh, what's it called again? What's it called? Uh, uh, it's called Ibotta, I-B-O-T-T-A. Get it from today from the App Store. Uh, when you download it, every time you open it, on the bottom it says, Designed and Built in Denver, Colorado. Mm. And it does that... And it has a really cool little mountain on it, too. It does that because people didn't know that Photo Bucket was a huge success story and based in Denver. Mm -hmm. People didn't know about MapQuest being based in Denver. And so it, what good is it if it's not associated with Colorado and Denver? And so I think as consumer technology gets out there, people then think of the town. And then Denver Startup Week comes and accelerates that. And so it's been really interesting in the 10 years I've been out here to watch that all happen in a really accelerated way. Did the city's history of, of, you know, with telecom or cable or, you know, those kinds of companies, how did that, did that lay any kind of groundwork for the startups and the, you know, the consumer apps that are now proliferating? Absolutely. So companies that are really proficient in manipulating data, like Experian had a presence here, DataLogix, there are a whole host of companies that have, you know, that bring a certain talent pool to town. Now cybersecurity is clearly another one that's emerged. That creates a climate uh, in the energy space, the clean energy space, that's clearly happened. 
It's been a problem for us, though, that there is really no other at-scale mobile technology in Colorado. And so as we look to do things like user acquisition of a mobile app, we're bringing those people from California and from New York into Denver, training them, creating that critical mass. So yes, and what happens is little eddies emerge, and within those eddies, you get tons of success, but other areas are starved for very specific talent. So the hardest jobs to fill are marketing jobs. <laughs> Consumer-facing marketing jobs are the hardest ones to fill for us, and we end up having to go hire people like Tim, who's here tonight, our chief uh, marketing officer. We had to relocate him from San Francisco, sell him on Denver. His wife's from Australia. She's never been to Colorado. The recruiting is still a, a meaningful challenge for certain pockets. Brian Leach is founder and CEO of the Denver consumer app company, Ibotta, one of four guests who took part in Denver Rising from the New York Times, a roundtable about the city's growth and its future. The Times is focusing on the region more broadly in a series of events called Look West. Coming up, the role artists play in Denver's boom. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Decades of planning, courting, and promotion led to Denver's growth. We're hearing about that today in Denver Rising, a panel discussion from late last year organized by the New York Times. We recorded it and we bring it to you today. The moderator is the Times Rocky Mountain correspondent Jack Healy. The panelists are former Denver mayor and now Governor John Hickenlooper, preservationist and developer Dana Crawford, tech CEO Brian Leach, and right now Britta Erickson, director of the Denver Film Festival. She says the film industry in Colorado is alive and well today, but it wasn't always. It was so dormant for so long. Um, We lost all of our crew and um, most of our great filmmakers to other places like New Mexico um, because we had administrations that didn't understand that there's significant economic impact that comes along with the film industry. Um, And so we were able to get Donald Zuckerman in place as a film commissioner, have a film office, have a 20% rebate, so much activity. There were 17 (coughs) new projects that happened this year due to that incentive. Let's just hope in the future that we can make it so it's an incentive that we don't have to go back to every year to renew. That's the problem with attracting television production is that right now we're not going to get a Breaking Bad in the city of Denver because you're not going to establish a show here um, you know, TV's the new thing. It's, like, hotter than movies, and I say that as a film festival director. Um, but uh, everyone's binge-watching uh, the rise of Netflix and those kind of things. So right now, uh, we can't. We can't promise somebody like Steven Soderbergh and HBO that, that they can come to Denver, set up camp here, and film for seasons upon seasons. Um, but what we have been successful in doing, I think, in the, in, you know, specifically in the film industry and with the Film Commission, is to attract some things that also drive something else that I think now the legislature does understand, which is tourism. Um, What a great way to show off all the amazing things we have here in Colorado by shooting, you know, having Tarantino here to shoot Hateful Eight, um, having Robert Redford just wrapped last week on a Kent uh, Hurif-based film starring Jane Fonda. I mean, these are big-time directors who are choosing to film here. We have everything but, but the ocean. Um, We're working on that. <laughs> part of your big water plan. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm a native. I did grow up in a, you know, the daughter of an artist. The Denver Art Museum was always my playground um, before, you know, now has really expanded. I think we just have a rich, rich cultural life here. And I think that that's, you know, the creative class is important. Um, John, I feel like you go to any city and there's always a Silicon something. There's, it's a Silicon Slopes or Kansas City wants to become the Silicon Prairie or, you know, cities are chasing tech businesses and, and innovation. And what do you think separates the ones who can pull it off and the ones who struggle with it? I mean, What's the line between success and failure in terms of really fostering, you know, innovation um, and and new businesses? Well, I think part of it's tech and part of it's just innovation. Yeah. And the people that naturally are curious and driven, you know, they're going to create something new. They're not sure what it's going to be, but they're just going to do it. And they can generally live anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of what we imagined back in the late 80s and the 90s of having a residential downtown where you could walk around, where uh, we should get Dana to talk about the, the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District. You know, one-tenth of one percent for the whole metro area that goes to scientific and cultural facilities, the Art Museum, the Zoo, the Museum of Nature and Science, you know, a total of 280 cultural institutions all over the metro area. Well, the things now, I know, 55 or $60 million a year. $55 million a year. So that brand of having Red Rocks and all this music and, and cultural, just a lively place, I think a lot of the really innovative kids in school weren't on the football team and they maybe weren't cheerleaders and they didn't fit in with the, all the other succeeders in high school and they were on the margin uh, and they were kind of daydreaming about uh, how to write code uh, or, or something or something abstract but complex. And I think they hung out with the painters and the artists and the musicians and the, the other kids. There is a real strong argument that they want to be in a place that's inclusive, where everyone's welcome, no matter what, whether you're Latino or African-American or white or whatever, whether you're straight or gay. That embracing community would embrace them. And they want a place that's full of culture. And that the more culture there is, the more those technology-oriented would-be entrepreneurs want to be there. And I think that... You know, the Rocky Mountains doesn't hurt because a lot of them want to be outside. And uh, What Brian was talking about, the balanced lifestyle, huge with millennials. And so we already had a lot. We had, as as somebody might say, we had good bone structure. But I think that that pushing in cultural and beginning to talk about it, we're just beginning to get known as a place that really is a major cultural hub uh, in the country. Do you feel that John's a pretty good salesman? (laughs) (laughs) So, but I mean, that's so true, and and he didn't mention that he really, on sort of a one-man band basis, brought the Clifford Still Museum, which has to be one of our great, great cultural advantages. So, I think that there's kind of a can-do spirit going on here now that is sort of part of the answer to all these questions. Yeah. You're hearing on Colorado Matters Today a panel discussion put together by the New York Times called Denver Rising. The moderator is the Times Rocky Mountain correspondent, Jack Healy. I'm curious to also talk about some of the challenges that come with this growth. Um, I mean, obviously... You mean more than marijuana? (laughs) I don't know. I just think that we spend a lot of time talking about... Like over the past two days and really the past election season, sort of the people who've been left out by 
you know, America's prosperity. It, you know, the unemployment rate in this town is 2.8%. You know, I think something like, what is it? 2,400 jobs were added just the past month that the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics um, kept track. So the, the concerns here, and I think the, the qualms here, aren't about you know, unemployment or industries vanishing, but it's the pains of growth that come from being priced out of a city, being priced out of your art space, uh, the concerns in some neighborhoods from longtime people who see the family next door sell out and move out and someone build a million-dollar home and scrape the the nice bungalow that used to be there. So I, I guess I'm kind of curious as to sort of how the city is doing with dealing with those issues related to growth and, and where maybe it's falling short right now. I would say that the challenges have, from where I sit, have to do with the slow pace of diversity, especially racial diversity, in the applicant pool of people who apply to Ibotta. We try really hard on this, and we, we go... You know, maybe not far enough, but we we're all very intentional about it. We have more women than we have men as Can employees. Can you describe just you know your average applicant and where they come from? Well, first of all, our our average workforce is 28 years old. We have a lot of people with first job out of college, a lot of people who are doing customer support work who are out of metro or didn't go to college. But then we also have people who are in there you know, 40s, 50s, who are more senior executives who have experience in the industry. But look, I mean, it, it really, it concentrates in the bell curve concentrates in, in the late 20s. And so you've got all the good and the challenges that come with a, a millennial workforce. Everyone's self-actualizing every day. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're, we're benefiting from that. And sometimes we're challenged by that. But I think everybody expects there to be the kind of diversity that there is in other startup communities. Like you go to San Jose, mm-hmm. you know, you go to Manhattan, Brooklyn. It's not like that out here just yet. My best friend is Sikh. I can't convince him to move out here. Um, that annoys me. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think we, we, we will still continue to do a good job of that. But I think it's also, instead of just having pockets of town where that exists, you know, more of a, a, a multicultural downtown uh, would be helpful. Uh, I think that's one recruiting challenge that we face. One of the things that makes this entrepreneurial community so special is how reciprocal and how collegial it is and how much we're all rooting for each other to succeed, introducing each other to each other's board members and investors, you know, rooting for Galvanize, rooting to see uh, all these other companies do well. And I don't want to see that change. So I'm keeping a close eye on that. Dana, what are some of the, the changes that you see when you drive through the neighborhoods um, you know, as they get renovated, as people move in, buy houses? I mean, and what, are, what are sort of the, the risks of historical fabric being frayed? Well, fabric, not necessarily historical, but I think we are all facing a quite a big comeuppance in 10 to 15 years because of all the the codes that require our houses to be built, our supposedly affordable houses to be built out of plywood and to be five or six stories high, our community is going to look, I think, tragically unimaginative in certain areas because of this. And that is a subject that a lot of people are concerned about is the the quality of the built environment as we are responsible for it today. We have such challenging traffic situations now. Uh, We're going to have to embrace a lot of new manners of transportation. I currently am going through the beginnings of a love affair with gondolas. 
um, because they could be absolutely fantastic in this community. And they move a lot of people quickly and beautifully. But at the moment now, what are they going to be looking down on? We have some big problems. I think the biggest problem that we have, and it's everybody's problem and everybody's challenge, and that is, like many cities, but perhaps in a greater number and more diverse, is the homeless situation. You know, when you drive up and down the alleys in our community and you see families living and so many people living in a homeless situation, I just end by saying it's, it's, it's our responsibility. I mean, it was an issue that, that you confronted and that you obviously dealt with as, as, as mayor. Everything Dana said is right. We took an economic approach to it rather than solely a moral approach, although the moral approach I think is compelling. But the flat truth, especially when you're talking about the chronically homeless, people who have been living under a bridge or you know, families who have been on the street for more than a month, the cost to society is significantly more to perpetuate lives of intolerable misery. I mean, for a chronically homeless individual, the average cost when they go to a hospital is $28,000 per visit, right? It's because when they're homeless, they don't go there until it's really bad, and usually they have a chronic illness like diabetes, and they get there, and their arm is blue, and, and they have to be in the emergency room for like two months because they can't discharge them because they're homeless. I mean, we're all paying that, right? And a large number of the chronically homeless were employed, good citizens, and something went wrong, a death, a, a, a fractured relationship, you know, get, getting laid off of a, a company where they'd worked for 15 years. And most, not all, but most of the chronically homeless are emotionally fragile, for lack of a better word, and mental health issues. And we found that when you get chronically homeless people into housing, and it can be very, I've been talking 400, 500 square foot apartments, but a place that's their own, and you make sure they have what we call wraparound services, a medication for mental illness, that they get treatment for addiction, and most importantly, they get job training because they need to have some sort of a regular social framework to live. And the savings, you can put someone in a 500 square foot apartment and it's their own home and give them wraparound services for about $15,000, dollars $16,000 a year. We were spending $42,000 a year for just to perpetuate these chronic lives of misery. And I think that's what we've got to get back to not just a moral argument, but a powerful financial argument that these are members of our community. And most of them, once you get them into it, I mean, they'll fall off the wagon and over the first six months, you'll have to put a lot of effort. Three or four times, you'll have to get them to come back to work and tell them they're loved and do that. But once you get past about six or seven months, they become a, a keystone members of a, of a workforce. And everyone has a sense of responsibility and, and, and there's a connectedness there that I think I've heard again and again very beneficial. We had at one point, we had six different social workers working for the city of Denver going out and, you know, you have to negotiate with somebody under the, living under the bridge and say, oh, you can, we'll put you, you can live. I'm not cut out for that and you're going to make me work, no. And, and I can't tell you how many, at least five times, individuals have looked me in the eye and said, no, I was never cut out for a nine-to-five life, never. I, I never was happy, I never would be happy. And then we finally get them in, they get sick or something, they get into housing, we get them into a job, and I see them a year and a half later and they say, remember when I said that to you? I was crazy, I'm so happy now, right? Because they've given up on themselves, but it's not an insoluble problem. I'm really curious about how each of you thinks the city is going to look in another 
25 years or so. I mean, in fast tracks will continue to expand. People will continue to move in. I mean, I think uh, Rocky Mountain PBS estimated that Colorado's population, now at about 5.3 million, is going to be closer to 8 million in 2040. So what does the city look like? How do we account for new people? How do we find water resources for the many people who are coming here? And how do we just sort of anticipate for all the growth? How do we give them enough culture? Well, we continue to support the SCFD, although we've got that now until 2030. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, I, I think that... Like you, I'd like to see a more diverse population, Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something that I think arts can help to attract a more Mm -hmm. diverse population. Um, But, you know, I worry, like Dana, a bit about some of the architecture, and we're popping up a bunch of stuff everywhere and getting rid of parking lots. Not that parking lots are great to look at, but, you know, there is going to be some tension there between some of the, the growth that happens because... We do want more people to move here that are more diverse, um, that are more you know, engaged citizens of our community. So we have to find places to house them. So where developers are building stuff all over the place, and I'm not sure that some of that stuff is going to look so, so terrific in 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, uh, we're a city with a can-do spirit. And I think part of it is, where does the growth take place? Because yeah. I think we are going to overcome those challenges. I think... I think we have a bunch of great architects that will start being great stuff. But out around the airport, is going to be a real density. And, and imagine these dense villages around each stop. And, I mean, there are uh, fast tracks with 58 additional light rail stops. Each one becomes a village. The probability that a young person will have a friend lives in the village around one of these stops so they don't have to get in a car, that the more you densify each node, each stop on the light rail, the higher the probability is that people will, the young people coming in will need less cars. This is something that I think is a mindset that is going to have to be hopefully favorably changed and that we will have some great examples of some higher-rise buildings in these clusters. Portland, Oregon is doing quite a great job about it. One, one thing I wonder, and I don't know much about it, is, is what will we do about access to the mountains when we have 8 million people? Yeah. It's billions of dollars to build a train mm-hmm. out to Aspen and Vail, apparently, um, but, you know, but but gondolas maybe. I mean, what what will what will we what will we what will we do, Dana? What will we do? I want to know. Maglev. I don't know. It's going to be very very expensive. But when you look at our history, why step by step we have faced the music. I think it'll be more likely to do. It's hard to say, but the self-driving vehicles. Bus rapid transit done really well where it's absolutely smooth. Like the, you know, when you go to DIA and you go up from the main concourse out to each of those terminals, mm-hmm. the main terminal out to the concourses, you're, that's really a bus. That's not a train. Yeah. That's rubber tires on concrete, but the concrete's so smooth and the, and the suspension system is so cool that you don't feel it. And I think that is a much less expensive way. And then you can do, you can have the bus rapid transit in a, in a, a new lane, so it's much cheaper than rail. And it allows you to have, you can still have raised platforms so people walk in and off. It feels like a train. But you can also have local buses. You can have people that pay. It's worth them to pay 25 or 30 bucks to get up to Vail, and they don't want to wait in the traffic. Uh, you have more flexibility. And I think that's probably, I mean, the real question is how, much is, how many is enough people for Colorado before yeah. you can't climb your favorite, get on your favorite trail, you can't do the things you think define Colorado as special and unique. 
Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper there. You also heard Brian Leach, founder and CEO of the consumer app company Ibotta, based in Denver, plus preservationist Dana Crawford and Britta Erickson, director of the Denver Film Festival. Their conversation, called Denver Rising, was moderated by Jack Healy. He's Rocky Mountain correspondent for The New York Times. We recorded the event in November. You can learn more about the series it's a part of, Look West, at cprnews.org. Coming up, the founder of a spiritual publishing house in Colorado shares some of her favorite teachings from the past 30 years. Tammy Simon joins us on Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Before Oprah Winfrey brought spiritual thinkers to a mainstream audience, there was Tammy Simon. She's grown her Louisville-based audiobook company, Sounds True, from, as she puts it, a woman with her tape recorder, to a major publishing house. The company estimates that it reaches more than 2 million people a month, and it's growing, titles and staff. Simon's label has struck relationships with big names, Thich Nhat Hanh, Andrew Weil, Carolyn Mace, and Eckhart Tolle. A while back, we asked Tammy Simon to share some of her biggest epiphanies from the last 30 years. She brought audio clips that have changed the way she looked at life. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Before we get to those clips, a little backstory here. Sounds True began after your father died. Is that right? That's correct. About five months after his death, I received a small inheritance, about $50,000, and I used that to begin the company in April of 1985. What did you want to achieve? I wanted to do something worthwhile with myself. I wanted to make a contribution. I wanted to be of service. I wanted to bring my gifts forward. And, you know, quite honestly, I wanted a job, and I was pretty unemployable at the time. I see. So you created your own employment. And in the early days, it really was about cassette tapes and and what? Re- recording thinkers, I guess, uh, at events out in the community. Well, the phrase that came to me when I was praying about my life purpose and contribution was a very simple three-word phrase, disseminate spiritual wisdom. So that was my rallying cry when I began the business. That was what I wanted to do. I wanted to bring forward ideas and teachings that would be a lifeline for people in the way that spiritual wisdom teachings had been a lifeline for me in my young life. How had they helped you? There were books by authors like Herman Hess, Alan Watts, and when I read those books, I encountered a world of philosophical insight that to me was a kind of homecoming. I felt, oh, people like this have explored what does it mean to care about our deathbed reflections as a centerpiece of our life, the meaning of our life. And when I read their books, I felt like I had friends in what was, for me, a pretty lonely universe. And so I wanted to provide that type of friendship, that type of torchlight for other people. Do you often contemplate your deathbed moments? I do. I think of at the end of my life, will I feel like I was fully used up, that I fully gave my gifts, that I burned as brightly as I could, that I realized the potential of my incarnation. Yeah, I think about that a lot. This idea of spirituality, you know, it's it's a broad term. Do you subscribe to a particular doctrine or faith tradition? Is is there one a, a faith that you bring to sounds true? No, I would say early in my life I started 
meditating. So I discovered the practice of meditation. And in that, there is a direct contact with the world of inner knowing and guidance. So there's not a doctrine or a dogma, a particular faith tradition that mediates between me and a direct knowing of what I need to know in any given moment. And that, you could say, is the path of the mystics, of all great mystics. There's no intermediary in the life of a mystic. It's a direct contact, direct receiving. So do you find that consumers then of your audiobooks are of all different faiths, of no faith in particular, or what? What does your audience tell you about who receives the message? Sure. I think there are a lot of people right now who consider themselves, quote unquote, spiritual, but not religious. They don't identify within any faith tradition. There are also people within faith traditions who are drawn to what you could call the esoteric or the mystical aspect of that tradition, the mystical aspect of Christianity or Judaism. And I think people who are drawn to that esoteric or mystical aspect are also interested in what Sounds True has to offer. I also think we appeal to some people who just consider themselves atheists, but are interested in asking deep questions of personal inquiry. So I had you choose some of the most memorable teachings you've heard in the last 30 years. Let's dive in. A real theme, it sounds true, is answering the question, how can I be nicer to myself? Mm -hmm. Here is Kristen Neff, who teaches educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She has focused her career on self-compassion. And in this recording, she says, the little voice in your head that's critical of yourself isn't all bad. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the key issues is letting go of our view of self-criticism as the problem. Now, it is a problem. It causes a lot of suffering. But what we found in our research and in our teaching of self-compassion is that we need to have a lot of compassion for our self-critic. This voice, this constant nagging voice saying you're not good enough, you're, you need to do more of this, you need to mo- do more of that, it actually comes from a desire to keep ourselves safe to keep ourselves from being rejected, to maintain social relationships. It actually comes from a place of care for ourselves, but it's been twisted. And we think that if we criticize ourselves and we'll be able to control ourselves and force ourselves to be the person we want to be that will be safe and loved and accepted. So you first have to have compassion for this voice that's trying to keep ourselves safe through self-criticism, trying to motivate us, realize that it's not that effective And then you can bring in the compassionate voice that says, you know, I want to keep you safe too, but I'm going to do it through kindness and care as opposed to harsh self-criticism because it's actually a lot more effective. And once you do that, uh, everything shifts. And in fact, there's research showing that when you give yourself self-compassion, you lower your cortisol levels associated with self-criticism. So physiologically, you're changing as well as mentally. Why does that stick with you? I created this project called the Self-Acceptance Project, where I had the chance to interview over 20 different teachers on this topic of self-acceptance and self-compassion. 
And the reason I was so interested in it is because I have a really harsh inner self-critic. And all the meditation and all the prayer, we're still not getting at this self-critic. And that's why I put this series on. And Kristen Neff's comments particularly. That you should love your self-critic. Understand what it's trying to do for you. Uh It's trying to keep you safe. It's trying to keep you from feeling exiled from the group, which is a really terrible thing that any of us could experience. And so once we understand that this is biologically wired into us and that it's performing actually a function to protect us, to help us, then we don't have to be like, oh, the critic, I just can't stand my critic, which is the way I was. The thing I have to get rid of entirely. Exactly. Instead, Uh I can actually have an attitude of respect and appreciation for this part of me that's trying to do something good. So Kristen Neff comes at this from a scientific perspective, an Mm -hmm. academic perspective, but you have speakers who deal in, shall we say, the unprovable. Uh, Tammy Simon, founder of the spiritual publishing house Sounds True in Louisville, when we asked you to choose some of your favorite recordings from the past three decades, you also chose one from Carolyn Mace, who describes herself as a medical intuitive. Um, She teaches that illness is tied to stress. Uh, She told you this story. I remember years and years ago when I was, I think maybe 19 years old, and I was driving home from Mars Candy Company where I worked in Chicago. And I did. I, I packed Snickers bars. That's how I worked through college, my way through college. And I worked 3.30 to midnight, six days a week. And I was driving home at midnight down Oak Park Avenue in Chicago. And as I was driving, I heard a voice and the voice said, slow down, a red truck's going to run the next stop sign. And I did exactly that. I slowed down in a red truck, pickup truck, ran through the next stop sign. And in fact, it would have killed me because this truck was going so fast and I was just in a tiny little car. But it wasn't until after the red truck ran that stop sign that I realized I'd heard a voice. And the voice was as clear as my voice with you. It wasn't that I was driving down thinking, am I hearing voices? I heard that voice. It was direct. It was a take no prisoner's voice. I said, slow down. That was grace. The presence of grace. What did you make of that story when you first heard it? That story and many of the stories that I've heard from Carolyn Mace have quite literally blown my mind and changed my rational view of what's possible in the world. And if you're really a truth seeker and an explorer of truth, and I I do think of myself that way, someone who cares about knowing what's true, I've had to be open to hearing all kinds of things from Sounds True authors and letting that information change me. Oh, that actually happened. And so I'm not interested in pinning it down and saying it means this, it means that. It means that we live in a world of mystery where some very mysterious things happen, and I'm open to hearing those stories and being open to that in my own life as well. Is this a form of evangelism? It's clearly not a form of fundamentalism of any kind mm-hmm. because Sounds True publishes audio and books and 
online courses with over 300 different authors. So there's so many different perspectives represented. So it's not fundamentalist in any kind. Would I say I'm on a mission of some kind? I would say I am. And that mission is to open people up, to open them up to their own inner guidance, their own inner knowing, and to break open some of the kind of locked down paradigms of what we think is possible when it comes to personal faith. We're listening back to a conversation from July with Tammy Simon. She's founder of the spiritual publishing house Sounds True, based in Louisville. Simon will share more of her epiphanies from the last 30 years or so after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tammy Simon is my guest, founder of Sounds True, the major audio publishing house now based in Louisville. It's been around for uh, over three decades now. And uh, why don't we hear the final recording you chose, something that has stuck with you over these decades, from a teacher named Adya Shanti, who was born Stephen Gray. He's a student of Zen Buddhism. I love to share something my teacher's teacher said. Shunryu Suzuki said, the most important thing is to find out what is the most important thing. And it's one of those sort of nice, like, Eastern guy things to hear. Until you look at it, and you think about it, and then you realize this is actually something that's very profound. Certainly as a teacher, I found that it's very profound. That the most important thing is to find out what is the most important thing. Until you found out what is the most important thing for you, you haven't touched the power within you. You haven't touched the spark within you. You haven't touched the fire. Not the thing that should be most important. Not the thing you think you should feel is the most important, but the thing that actually is the most important. The most important thing is to find out what is the most important thing. What is that for you? Truthfully, here, it's not the same in every given moment. It's not like, oh, I found out what is the most important thing. The box is checked and I never have to ask that question. Ah, this idea that the, the, the secret to life is somehow static throughout life. Yeah, that's not my experience. It's the question itself. What's the most important thing? And what is the most important thing right now? That is a very fruitful question. How do you answer it today? In my heart right now, the most important thing for me is to be loving, to actually tune to my heart and be loving. Over the years, Sounds True has produced about 1,500 titles with more than 500 spiritual thinkers. But in those 30 years, you'd never released your own audio program, Tammy Simon. Until now, it's called Being True. And what struck me is you've spent your career grounded in spiritual teachings, And you still struggle, which is really refreshing, by the way. Um, You're really honest about this on this recording. Here you are talking about how your search for truth got in the way of a loving relationship. Interestingly, at the time, this was about 12 years ago, I was planning to go on another long meditation retreat. Three weeks long, four weeks long. And there was my beautiful partner. Julie. We'd been together for about two years at that point. And a message that she kept repeating was something like this. 
you work a lot, you go on a lot of meditation retreats, don't you want to spend time with me? And why don't you want to spend time with me? I don't get it. Reflect on that for me. The idea that in some ways um, a, a seeking of spirituality can be a block to intimacy. Can certainly be an escape. And I think for me there was both a, a deep quest to realize the infinitude, if you will, of love. But I was very comfortable experiencing that by myself on a meditation cushion, not actually in a deep intimacy for long periods of time with my beloved partner, who's now my beloved wife. It was terrifying for me. And one of the principles I've had is to go into the places that are terrifying, go into our fear, that that's where the most growth is. And so I had to tell the truth that the most growth for me was in intimacy, not on the meditation cushion all by myself, where I was quite comfortable. Hmm. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, Ryan, thank you so much for your good work and your beautiful smile. Tammy Simon is founder of the spiritual publishing house Sounds True, based in Louisville, near Boulder. It's been around now for three decades. We spoke in July. And that's Colorado Matters for today from Colorado Public Radio. I'm Ryan Warner.